Welcome to the Player Development Project podcast. My name is Dave Wright, co-founder and editor of Player Development Project. PDP is a website for coaches who are committed to learning, and we provide a huge library of resources which consists of cutting-edge insights from the world's most innovative player developers, coach educators, and researchers. If you want to learn from the best and join a community of like-minded coaches, then check out playerdevelopmentproject.com. On this week's Player Development Project podcast, we answer a question from our community. Hi everyone, my name's Dave Wright and once again welcome to another Player Development Project Q&A. As always, I'm joined by PDP Technical Advisor Dan Wright. Dan, how are you, mate? Really well, thank you. Uh, looking forward to this question. I think it could be a, a good chat, this one. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting one and it's coming from Pete via the PDP Facebook page. And Pete said, I see a lot of passing patterns online. What do you think of them? So quite a broad question and obviously something that polarizes opinion in terms of opposed versus unopposed. Is the debate even relevant? Is it worthwhile? Um, and you know, we've had contributors like Ben Bartlett say that the the reductionist argument in coaching is is somewhat redundant, and we can't really break things up. But there is a spectrum in coaching, so this is a really interesting one to tackle. So, Dan, what are your thoughts to kick things off? Yeah, I think you should start this one because I think you've got quite <laughs> a strong opinion around um, perhaps kind of magpie seeing stuff online and then. Um, Sticking it straight onto under nines. What 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 are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, look, I think I think it's something I see a lot, in particularly on social media groups, um, where there's a lot of coaching content being shared. And I think one of the key things with PDP is that we've always said, look, we'll provide um, session plans, but they're adaptable practices, and you need to very much tweak them that, so they're relevant to your players, whether that's the age, the ability, um, the stage on their own journey. And I think having a framework um, is is fine, and a lot of practices can be adapted, but it's very um, I think it's very unrealistic to see, you know, Simeone putting on a practice with Atletico Madrid and then say, I'm going to go and do that with my under 13s. Um, I think it's very different youth development to the professional game. And a lot of the content you see online in terms of video sessions um, with professional clubs is not necessarily relevant to those kind of younger ages. Um, so whilst there's bits you can take, um, a Rondo is a good example, you know, 4v4 plus 3. I think that is a session that does have relevance for young players in terms of receiving skills, releasing skills, positional understanding, rotation, moving on different lines. There's lots of stuff you can get out in those kind of positional play practices. Um, again, as long as they're relevant to your players. But just taking a session you see on film uh, on the web and then putting it into your environment, there can be a risk to that. So I think it's important to put some context around um, what you see on the web and then what's relevant to your players. Um, do you sort mm. of agree, disagree with that? I do agree. I think the, um, you know, we, we come back to a lot of the same messages on these Q&As. I think that the why of the practice is, is important. So when you see these first team practices, whether it's, you know, Chelsea, Barca, Atletico, top, top teams, those practices are for those players. Mm. Um, and, and there's loads of context around that. So the, the, the first thing is, like you said, I, I think those players are elite. They are, the you know, the top 0.01% of people in the world and they're not the same as under nines that are learning the game. Mm. So watching Aguero finish is not the same as watching an, an under nine finish and, and, and they will get different returns and they'll need different things at different times. Um, I also think that a lot of the footage that these put these clubs put out are practices that they want you to see. So they don't show you um, perhaps Simeone doing a phase of play about how they're going to stop uh, Real Madrid because they don't want people to see that. So some of the sessions are kind of 
uh, kind of maintenance tick over sessions. They could be playing two or three games in eight days and it could just be to get the guys out on the pitch. And so that's not the same as, as an under nine session. Um, and so there's, there's so much context around that, isn't it? The, the learning versus performance, the what's the session for? Like these guys will be uh, that their kind of physical returns we really monitored. And so how intense those sessions are means that the coaches will put on certain things. Um, I know that Guardiola, a lot of his kind of fitness sessions look like football as well. So they're very keen on, on kind of, um, you know, having mannequins and hurdles and then it's to a finish. And then people will say that's a finishing practice. But my understanding is that Man City do those more for kind of a motivational thing so that the guys are doing the, the running and jumping and landing stuff with a little bit more enthusiasm. Mm. And Guardiola or uh, his fitness coach, I think it's Ren Ventura, tends to do it in areas of the pitch that match as well. Yeah. I think um, Guardiola is a big fan of that. So it's kind of like uh, full backs would work in certain areas and number nines would work in certain areas. But that you know, is that valid and is it important for under 10s? Probably not. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I think we can kind of move on now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's that's the rant over. I think we've we've massively qualified our sort of perspective on this. But but I think we're we're getting a question here, which really um, could be debated as drills versus patterns. Is there a difference? So maybe we should start there in terms of your thoughts on the difference between a drill and a pattern, and and where there is value in a pattern of play. Mm. I mean, it's semantics, isn't it? Because yeah. some people. That I know use drill for everything. Yeah. So a rondo is a drill. Uh, a finishing practice is a drill. So they have drills and games. Like, yeah. and some people kind of probably more like you and I that are a bit more pedantic would say, no, no, this is a drill. This is a pattern. This is a. This is a, this yeah. is a. So a drill, in my opinion, would be no decision making. So it would be purely for um, repetition of technique. It would be predetermined. So it would be you go from here to here, or you run from here to here, or you pass to A to B and you run there. So zero decision-making for the players, but lots of repetition um, and people could argue about technical returns or, or, or honing technique, which again is a separate uh, Q&A topic. Um, a pattern for me would be something that looks like the game and is, is unopposed or very kind of overloaded um, with a tactical return. That's how I'd kind of describe a pattern. So the idea of you know playing out from the back or switching play or, or working a crossing situation but um, the ball doesn't always have to be predetermined. So it could be, you know, we, we want to get the return of safe switching play. So we know that it needs to go from this side to this side, but it doesn't have to do it A to B to C. It could mm. be we switch with the long ball. We could switch with two passes. We could go up, back and then switch. That would be the difference between a pattern and a drill, if, if I've made any sense there. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think there's, you know, you can, as you said, within a pattern, it doesn't have to be 11 players passing the ball unopposed um, in sort of a traditional shape work. Or it could be that there's a couple of centre-backs in play. It could be that there's a nine and a couple of other players pressing. Um, I know before matches um, in the past, it's something that I've used where you'll take the players who are starting, maybe it's a nine-a-side game, the nine go in and they just try and keep possession in their shape whilst perhaps four or five players who are starting on the sideline go in and just work as a pressing team. Now that may only be for five or six minutes. Obviously, you don't want to run players into the ground um, full distances before the game, but it may be just to give the team who's starting a little opportunity to say, okay, we're playing in a 3-2-3 today. Let's go out there and move the ball around in our shape. And the team that's pressing works for short rotations and gets the chance to score if they win the ball and they get to attack uh, underloaded. So there is that sort of place to put players in there. But I think the ability to use a pattern for tactical understanding and 
I think the key here is allowing the decision. So whilst you may use equipment, um, whether that's mannequins or whether that's putting cones in certain areas um, or whatever's at your disposal, you may say, look, we want to try and get the ball into this area and then we want to try and get a finish. Now the movement off uh, around that may be entirely decided by the players, um, but you just lay the framework down or, or perhaps the shape that you play is the framework to do so. And as you say, the idea of a drill I couldn't agree more. Predetermined ideas where you're saying to players, you must pass this distance, move to this place. I, I think that's something that personally I would avoid. Um, but patterns, you know, these are things that I've, I've used with players at all ages, both uh, in the past and in the last few years as well, where there is a place um, for that kind of exposure to a little bit of positional play and a little bit of, okay, let's use the width of the pitch. And to get that repetition in, you're sacrificing the realism. Um, mm -hmm. And an example I can think of from a couple of years ago was in a, another 9v9 setting where we had just a front three and a midfield, uh, a number eight, just looking to weight balls between areas for players to receive on the move. So basic receiving skills um, and deliver basically into a, a striker and an opposite winger um, so that they could look at aerial finishing, different types of finishing. So you're working on technical things like receiving on the move, finishing on the move, different types of scoring. And they're getting a lot of opportunity to do that because you're removing that defender. Now there was there was freedom within that. So that for me has benefit with young players. Mm, I think um, the, the the difference between the, the predetermined drill and a pattern of play is there is still an element of decision making. Mm. So the decisions are probably narrowed. But you know, if I if I'm a, a wide player, I think that's an easy example. The wide player might be crossing first time, he might be dribbling and crossing, he might be um, waiting for an overlap. Um, but in a drill, you would the coach would make that decision for them. I think in a in a pattern you can you can still use a, a constraint-led approach because you could say, we need to switch to our seven, how you do that is up to you, and then you need to cross, how you do that is up to you. And then there is a bit of a variability then for that guy, but also for the maybe the finishers in the box. You know, this this practice I've got in my mind. Ball goes wide, then how do the nine and ten get into the box? Well, if he crosses first time, what happens to you quickly? If he takes a little dribble, I might have to make a double movement. And so there is there is still that element of decision making and I, and I like to think of it as like rehearsal so it's a it's a rehearsal and I, and I use them as like a lead into to something more opposed mm. um, so for example if you're doing a switch and play to cross to kind of stay on the same theme you could do that unopposed with mannequins with spaces I'm not a fan of, of players standing on cones because yeah. I think you're making decisions for them so um, I use a lot of kind of zones and pitch geography of like you guys start in this area and try and get into this area. Um, but then I would take it into a phase of play or, or even 11 v 11. And then, you know, can you do what you were doing? Can you now stick this on the opposition? Mm. Uh, so, so the rehearsal and there is a lot of tactical benefit, I think. There. I think the, the argument we're talking about with kids is um, Aguero knows where to stand. Yeah. Aguero knows where Sané will be. Do players, do young players know that? Do they need a rehearsal of the spaces? Especially if you train in court of an Asher turf, then when you go to game day, you sometimes need to say, no, actually the width is there and yeah. the depth is there. And like your triangle in the midfield three needs to look this big. It's hard for kids to transfer that learning if, if, it, if they have never, it's almost like you're asking them to build a platform on something and they haven't got the foundations. Absolutely. So that's the skill of the coach again, moving up and down that spectrum that we've talked about talked before and I think you're just kind of tuning the dials Danny Newcomb that was the phrase he used didn't he in the in the masterclass around kind of those those three R's that the, the relevance um, 
<coughs> excuse me, the relevance and the repetition, I think, will be different for, for those uh, for those players, won't it? Mm, and, and sometimes you do have to sac- sacrifice that realism. And I think the other thing on this is that when you're working on individuals, and I think coaches really need to be taking an individualized approach to player development across the board, you can use these kind of sessions to get those individual targets. And there is a, a practice in the session plan library called Pockets and Passing, and it's an example of an individual practice um, with some players I've worked with in the past. And essentially, you know, we had a, a right-sided player who was playing in the seven for that period of the season, and he was working on releasing. So all I said to him was, you're under the constraint of you must play the ball from anywhere between one and four touches. So whilst he was unopposed, he still didn't have forever to go and dribble and just score. He had to either try and release the ball one touch if he was in a correct position to do so or take the appropriate number of touches that he needed to get the feet sorted out, to get the ball in the right position and, you know, work on a variety of crosses or longer distance passing, which was part of his plan. Meantime, back in the number 10 position, you've got somebody who's working on weight of pass and shape of pass. So whether there's a mannequin there or whether there's a defender there, it may just be shaping the ball around that. It may be looking to weight the ball so it's in front of the winger to run onto so that he can play off his first touch. So there are different sort of individual constraints that you can put in a practice. And I would recommend that coaches have a look at that one in the session plan library because it does outline how you can work on that. Then if you go back into the number nine who's on the inside, perhaps they're working on a first time finish. So for them, it's going to be timing and shape of movement to get on the end of the cross that comes in, whether it's on the floor or whether it's in the air. And there's a lot of a lot of opportunity in there for those players to get success and try different things without the pressure of a defender. Mm. Um, that session in particular actually did have a centre back in there to to cause some problems for the for the for the nine and the opposite winger, um, and, and that means that there is a little bit of realism and there's some pressure, and that defender is getting to work on something that was position specific to them. So mm. you know there's ways that you can ramp it up, and I think a pattern of play um, also has tactical benefits. So do you want to sort of dig into that a little bit around how the where the tactical side comes out as opposed to the technical? Yeah, I think. I think in an unopposed pattern, I've got a chance to focus or or tune to to what I want. So, use the example of a nine. Um, in the game, they're going to have to think about where the defenders are, where the space is, um, what, where I'm going to take my touch, where my two mates are if I'm playing in a four-three-three. There's a lot going on, which is good. Like that's the game. That's what they need to be able to do. But at times it might be too complex a picture to ask them to focus on all those things and expect them to arrive at the right time in the right space and then apply the right finish. That's quite a lot for, for any player to deal with. So by moving up and down this spectrum, and I think it's important that we're, we're talking about using the whole spectrum, not saying that game that the game be the teacher is the best and let drills be you know, um, chucked in the bin mm. or vice versa. I, I don't think that one is better than the other. I think it has to be a balanced kind of diet and different players like you talked about will need different things. But to answer the question, <laughs> if, I, if, I was, if I was a number nine and I'm doing an unopposed um, pattern, I can just focus on a couple of things. I don't need to worry about the defenders. I could just focus on my timing to get into the box. The seven's getting it. The seven's getting it every single time I'm running into the box. So then you might be able to really zoom in on details of when Dave gets the ball and he opens up with his first touch, that's the moment to go. Mm. And it could be like milliseconds between the ball's travelling to Dave and I'm making a movement away, Dave's taking his touch, I'm getting into the box. And to get that much repetition in an opposed practice is difficult. So you might have to, if you think about how many returns or or how many opportunities for action that that player's going to get, in an unopposed practice, say 
that number nine gets 25 crosses. Well, you'd have to play for a long time for a, a number seven to cross the ball 25 times yeah. with a fullback against him. And so it's just, what is the intention of the session? What, what do you want the people to do? If you want loads and crossing and finishing, then make it easy for people to cross the ball. Mm. And you could have, like you said, a five and a six in there against a nine, and that would be really hard. Or you could have one defender against a nine, and that would be slightly easier. Or you yeah. could have no defenders, and that would be really easy. And so it's just about where you are on that spectrum and, and where do you want the players to kind of find find that pinch point and, and where's the challenge. Mm. Um, I wouldn't exclusively do these. I think that's important. I don't think I would say we do this every single week and we do this and then that's it. Yeah. Um, I often use them as a lead into something else. So we're using a big space practice, whether it's a 11 v 11, a 9 v 9 or a phase of play. These are the kind of pictures that I think we're going to see, we might see. And, you, and then it's a skill of the culture, whether you're saying these are the kind of three or four things that I think will generally happen. And of course, the game's random, so you can't say exactly these mm. things will happen. But you're, you're then giving the guys some competency and some framework to work on rather than player phase of play. What is it that they want me to do? I've got no idea. I'm running yeah. around. Uh, I think that's the kind of the, the, the very basic tactical understanding. Yeah. Um, and you can do that with a drill. I see coaches doing that with a drill where they they're exactly telling the guys what the move will be and then you try and run it on a game but when we're talking about skill skill needs to be adaptable and to be adaptable you need loads and loads of solutions to a problem like and that that's another argument of whether there are you know four or five set patterns mm. or there are a million possibilities and so it's it's kind of given the players opportunity but i don't i don't know whether you can expect the players to have the answers if they've never had an opportunity to discover the answers mm. and so they could get there if you did everything opposed all the time, but it might take a long, long time. And so it's it's okay for a coach to say, no, these are some of the ways you could cross the ball. Yeah. And, and then, then have a, a little search and discover. I think this comes down to as well how you define a pattern. So traditionally, a pattern of play may be seen as, well, we play this certain way, so there must be this combination to go through here, this combination here, almost scripted movements. Now, I would, I would look at a pattern personally and say, well, there's a structure there. And as I said earlier, there's a little bit of freedom within that framework to then go and, okay, we'll find a solution. So the ball's been played into this area. I need to speed up my run. I need to take my touch here. Um, so that that sort of uh, framework and that, that guideline as opposed to a strict you must pass from A to B to C. Um, that's how I would see it. And I think we were lucky enough um, a couple of years ago to spend the day up at Liverpool when Mick Beal was there. He's obviously now up at Rangers with the first team. And we watched him work with the 21s at the time and he did an interference-based pattern, didn't he, where it was all about quick play through midfield and they were switching from fullback to opposite winger, but it had to go through the midfielders. So little combinations and zinging the ball out to the opposite wing for a cross and finish. The focal point for him was those players centrally and how they combined where they took up positions and and obviously their effective uh, passing and receiving technique to move the ball quickly uh, whilst there was some interference because there was a pattern going in the opposite direction so there was some chaos there um, mm -hmm. there was some challenge for the players in terms of having to put their pass into areas so that didn't break down and there was a, de a desire to do it with quality and speed and obviously players at that age and with that experience have the ability to perform at a certain level if you're going to go and try this with under 12s, then perhaps they're not going to have the technical ability or move the ball as quick as players of, the, of 10 years older. Um, but So that's where there's got to be a degree of patience as well. Yeah, and Mick moved through that kind of spectrum, didn't he? Because he started with two kind of groups. I think they were tennis side. Yeah. So one group played and the other group played. It was alternating. And then he said, 
that uh, the defenders could try and get in the way. So they were playing through the defenders, but the defenders kind of just stood there. So yeah. if your cross or pass was rubbish, it was rubbish. And then he moved on to interceptions only. So as yeah. the ball came in, the centre-backs could try and uh, head it or clear it, but they couldn't actually tackle. And then it went on for maybe 10 minutes and then he went, right, just play. And he turned yeah. it straight into a game. Yeah. And so that was quite a nice way of... Um, this is some of the ways you could switch play. And you're right, he didn't tell the centre mids how to do it. Mm. He said, we're going to play full-back to opposite winger. But interference to full game. And that's quite a nice quite a nice way of doing it. And I think this kind of links into a whole part whole as well. You could, with kids, start with the phase of the game. Mm-hmm. Do something where the coach is more in control or, or you're narrowing those options and, and zooming in on different things and then go back to the game. And... and, and um, you know, if you use the example of a number nine, that would be play a game, try and score against these centre backs. Yeah. Okay. Here's some crossing and finishing for you to get loads of repetition of movement and finish. You know. Okay. Okay. He's doing different things. You're going to have to adapt. He comes high. There's space behind. He drops off. You might come to feet. Like, I think that's then giving the kids a, a, a nice kind of variance to jump from from something that's really random to mm. something simple to, to back to random and complex yeah and I think the last couple of thoughts from my perspective that this is also a way to almost periodize your work as well in the sense of um, by going unopposed or, or slightly opposed you're actually reducing the sort of impact and you might be slowing down um, the physical exertion so whether that's managing the size of the session and, and relative to the time of the week um, it may be a way just to say look tonight we're going to we're going to do a technical sort of lighter session and then you know, in a couple of days, we're going to do a heavier session where it's going to be more opposed. So if you are managing players' load, and, and, and we don't know the age of the team that Pete's working with, but if you are looking to take that into account, particularly through that youth development phase or those teenage years and, and on, um, it's important to just be aware that this is an opportunity to use the coaching spectrum to say, we'll dial down the physical exertion tonight, but you know, we want to see the technical quality. So let's make sure the detail is good. Um, so I think there's there's certainly a lot to consider there for Pete. Any final thoughts on this one for you? Yeah, my kind of two um, main focuses would be that ball speed is really important in these. Mm-hmm. So as a coach, you might have to drive standards. You might have to say, you know, that isn't quick enough or that isn't realistic. So, you know, you, you, like you said, you could do that with touches, but I, I tend to refer to ball speed. So, like, mm-hmm. the, even if the defender's passing out to a fullback, if it's all slowy, slowy, slow, and we're going to invite a press, then, you know, is that going to transfer to the game? So that's a good way to not make the practice opposed, but to make it demanding. If the, You know, if you're putting the ball into the number seven quickly, he's got to run quickly and cross quickly. It looks like the game. And then the other takeaway is context is king, isn't it? Like is. when, we're, when we're seeing all these videos or... Little, little snippets on Twitter or Facebook. Okay, what, what does that mean for my 12-year-old? Does it mean something or does it mean nothing at all? Absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you for your thoughts. Hopefully we've helped Pete out with that one and, and may cause some discussion or debate around that, I hope. Um, so thanks for your time and we will look forward to another Player Development Project Q&A very soon. Thanks for joining us on the Player Development Project podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PlayerDP or find us on Facebook. Don't forget to head over to playerdevelopmentproject.com where you can sign up to our progressive coaching community and gain access to our wide variety of resources to help you in your coaching.